Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In ruin, dozens are dead and more than 800,000 still without power. Hundreds of thousands are now homeless. It just is destroyed and it's ruined. And then you have to start all over again. But as hurricanes worsen, are there some areas where Americans shouldn't rebuild? I'll speak to FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell and Florida Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio. And upping the ante, Ukraine takes back a key city one day after Vladimir Putin illegally annexes four regions of Ukraine and then again threatens to go nuclear. There are no checks on Mr. Putin. Can the West keep the Russian leader under control? Plus, the road to 218. With the Democrats' majority threatened in Congress, Virginia becomes a battleground for one of the most competitive House races in the country. If you look across the spectrum in the country, this is number 218. What issues are on voters' mind? I spent time in a district that could prove decisive. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the State of Our Union is picking up the pieces after a devastating storm. The numbers and images are staggering. At least 67 are dead in Florida, four in North Carolina, more than 850,000 still in the dark this morning. Hundreds of thousands now essentially refugees days after Hurricane Ian swept ashore and swept away life as many know it. Already, more than 1,000 civilians have been rescued and evacuated, according to the governor's office. And we're getting a clearer view of Ian's map-altering impact. Entire stretches of Florida coastline are now gone. Once sprawling communities like Sanibel Island are completely shattered. Homes and businesses, what they looked like before on the left and what they look like now. Piles of concrete rubble strewn on the beach on the right. Tomorrow, President Biden and the First Lady will travel to Puerto Rico, severely damaged by Hurricane Fiona, and then on to Florida on Wednesday, where estimates put the storm-related damage in the tens of billions. I want to go straight to the person leading the national recovery effort, FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. Uh, Administrator Criswell, thank you so much for joining me. You took a tour on Friday of the devastation in Florida, entire, entire communities, as we just showed, destroyed. How did what you saw on the ground compare to other storms that we've seen in recent years? Yeah, good morning, Dana. Uh, Yes, I spent the last two days in Florida and Friday had the opportunity to travel with the governor to survey some of the the impacts that we have been hearing about and that we've been seeing on the news. And uh, the impacts are devastating. Uh, The coast of Florida, the western coast of Florida, many homes completely destroyed, several that are damaged, communities that are going to have a long road to recovery. But we also saw homes that are still underwater in the central part of Florida as Ian caused intense flooding um, as uh, it crossed the state. Uh, This is going to be an all-of-government response and recovery effort, and it's going to be an Mm all-of-society, bringing together all of our partners to help these people, to help all of these families get on their road to recovery. 
Do you expect the death toll to continue to rise significantly? And how long do you expect it take to take for the power to be restored statewide? You know, unfortunately, with uh, hurricanes of this size and that have this much catastrophic damage, uh, fatalities are always something that we think is going to be a possibility. First, I'd say that we knew this, and so we prepositioned a large amount, probably the biggest number of uh, search and rescue assets in the state prior to landfall to make sure that we could go in immediately to start those life-saving efforts. And that's what they were able to do. They were working directly for the counties, going in and conducting uh, search and rescues, um, even as much as uh, the day before yesterday in in the uh, central part of Florida, where the floodwaters were continuing to rise. Those teams are still there. They are now doing primary searches, which means that they are going house by house Mm -hmm. to make sure that uh, we can account for everybody. And while we certainly hope that we can continue to find more people alive and bring them out, uh, we're going to support the state and their needs um, as we continue to go house by house um, and make sure that everybody's accounted for. Incredibly harrowing work. Uh, You said on the show previously that powerful storms like the one we're talking about are, quote, going to be our new normal, calling climate change, quote, the crisis of our generation. Was Ian worse because of the climate crisis? You know, we have seen and I have said that we're seeing an increase in the number of storms and the intensity of the storms. And we've also heard from uh, the National Hurricane Center that these storms are going to bring more rain with them. And that's what we've seen in the last few storms. You know, we're going to have a lot of time in the days to come to understand, you know, what contributed to the intensity of the storm. What I'd say right now is we are very focused on the impacts, Mm -hmm. right? Regardless of what caused it, we want to focus on those people that were in the storm's path. We want to make sure that we're getting them the help they need. Well, part of getting them the help they need is the question of where these people, many of whom are simply homeless, are going to live. And rebuilding, as you said, could take years. It could cost tens of billions of dollars. The areas that we're seeing some of these devastating images are along a shore that was totally destroyed. Have we reached the point where it might be safer and less costly to relocate people rather than spending all of those billions of dollars to rebuild places that could get destroyed again? I think the important thing, Dana, is that people need to understand what their potential risk can be, whether it's along a coast or whether it's inland in a, in a, along a riverbed or even in Tornado Alley. People need to understand what their risk is. And we need to make sure that as we rebuild, we're at least rebuilding with the current building codes that are going to protect and reduce the impacts of these storms. Mm-hmm. You know, we could see some new construction that withheld very well in some parts of the state but certainly parts that were destroyed. And so it takes a combination of things and people need to make informed decisions about what their risk is. And if they choose to rebuild there, making sure that they do it in a way that's going to reduce their threat. And part of understanding risk is understanding whether or not you need flood insurance. Only about 18 percent of people living in the counties under evacuation have that insurance. And those decisions are often based on FEMA's flood zone maps. According to the nonprofit First Street Foundation, more than 186,000 properties at risk of flooding in those counties aren't included in your maps. I understand we've talked about this, that you said that you're Mm -hmm. updating the maps. It takes time. But the storm leaves countless Floridians in financial ruin. So what's the holdup? 
Yeah, so our flood maps uh, address a very specific type of flooding. But what I would say, Dana, is that people need to understand that uh, while in certain areas we require flood insurance, everybody has the ability to purchase flood insurance. And if you live near water or where it rains, it can certainly flood. And we have seen that in multiple storms uh, this year. And so, again, going back to people understanding what their potential risk is and it just because you're not required to buy flood insurance doesn't mean that you don't have the option to buy it. It is certainly your best defense to help protect your property in the aftermath of any of these storms. So you're saying regardless of what your maps say, if you live near water, you should buy anywhere near water. You should buy flood insurance. I think anybody who lives near water should certainly uh, purchase flood insurance because it's your number one um, tool to help protect your family and your okay. home after the after the storm. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it, and good luck over the next days and weeks to come. Dana, thank you very much. And Florida's Republican Senators Rick Scott and Marco Rubio are urging Congress for more money to rebuild their state. What will it take and when will they get it? They're going to both join me ahead. Plus, Hurricane Ian pushes Governor Ron DeSantis away from the political and towards the practical. How is the potential 2024 contender navigating what may be his biggest test yet. Stay with us. Like a horror movie, the scariest thing in their lives. People trapped in Ian's path describe an ordeal like no other. Can we get some help down here? You know, would that be too much to ask? I mean, you look around here, there's nothing. We have no power, no phone service, nothing. So we just like a little help. I'd like a little help to get my home back in shape because I have nowhere to go. Joining me now from the Emergency Operations Center in Naples, Republican Senator from Florida, Rick Scott, who is also the state's governor. Uh, Senator, thank you so much for joining me. You have led Florida through storms like this for years, both as governor and as senator. Is this the worst you've ever seen? I've seen it. This is really bad. Uh, you know, that probably, you know, Mexico Beach with Michael was horrible because they had nine foot of storm surge. This was actually even higher um, in Sanibel, Pine Island, places like that, Fort Myers Beach. Then I watched uh, what happens the storm surge down the Keys uh, with uh, Irma. I mean, it just pulls everything out. And you just heard about the individual. That's how people feel. They, you know, one, they're alive, which is you know, that's the positive. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of people in this storm and your heart goes out to them. But people that, are, that have gone through this, they have nothing. I mean, their home's gone. They, their power's not on. They don't have, they don't have water. They're just, they're, they need help. And so I know everybody's working hard. I've been, I've been touring the areas. I've been talking to sheriffs, with sheriffs, first responders. I know FEMA's here, uh, states here. Everybody's helping, but there's a lot of need right now. And, and there's a lot of need, especially in places like like Lee, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the Fort Myers area. But I was up in Kissimmee yesterday, and there's areas that you would never think would flood that have flooded. So you feel sorry for people. Yeah, no question. And you mentioned Lee County. Almost half of the deaths reported so far in Florida occurred in Lee County, where the hurricane made landfall Wednesday afternoon. Lee County didn't issue evacuation orders until Tuesday afternoon. That was less than 24 hours before landfall. And the New York Times is reporting that there were delays in issuing that order. And that's an apparent violation of their own policies for when to issue evacuation orders. Did Lee County fail to follow their own guidelines for when to evacuate? And did that delay cost lives? 
Well, first off, every life is important. Um, I mean, my, when I was governor, my goal was nobody die. We can, be, we can rebuild everything. I don't want anybody to die. Um, I think once we get through this and we do an assessment, what I always try to do as governor is say, okay, so what did we learn in each one of these? Because I had four hurricanes. We had flooding at different times and tornadoes. And what do you learn from each one of them? I think as we go through this, we'll find out. Well, is there things that we could do better to make sure we don't lose people's well, what lives? We're, sure. What we're learning, in fact, my colleagues have reviewed Lee County's own emergency plan. And what it calls for is an initial evacuation if there's even a 10% chance of a storm surge six feet or higher. And again, the Times is reporting that those criteria were met as early as Sunday based on the National Hurricane Center models. But the evacuation order wasn't issued on Tuesday. So this is something that we are learning now. Was that a mistake, especially given the death toll in Lee County? I think the way you have to look at it is every loss of life, you have to say to yourself, what could you do differently next time so it never happens again? Should that have been um, done differently? Unfortunately, we can't bring anybody back. We're going to look and find out. I mean, I, you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to know because it's issue I had as governor is trying to say, what did I learn to try to make sure that we don't lose a life? And so I think that everybody in every one of these emergency operations yeah. centers has to say to themselves, okay, so what do we do to make sure we don't lose a life? And also, you know, loss of uh, what can we do to mitigation all these things? So one other, I think it's something we have to look at. One other question on this. The Lee County commissioner said on CNN that it was because, quote, people got complacent. And that as far as he concerned, they had, pl- they had plenty of time to evacuate. Is that... The leadership you're looking for, it sounds like he's passing the buck on to the people who were the victims. Well, I tell everybody, you know, you're always responsible for your own safety. But I think, you know, what I try to do as governor is try to tell people what their risks were and re- really get people to think about it. this. Is not you're just your life. It's your family's life. Um, it's you know, it's don't put, you know, first responders. But they didn't in get an evacuation really order. Try to get people. I know. I mean. We're, I think it's something we have to look at to see why it didn't happen. Because, you know, what you have to look at is how fast, even if you do it, how fast can you get people out of some of these places? Because just the road structure and things like that. And, and so it's something I, I thought about quite a bit when I was governor. Actually, how fast can you get people? Once you do the evacuation notice, assuming everybody's going to do it, how fast can you get them out? So you have to think that way as you do it. you got to backtrack to do it that way. It's certainly a lot harder when they only have a few hours as opposed to doing the evacuation order earlier as is the Lee County uh, protocol. I want to ask you about how your successor, uh, Governor DeSantis, is doing. You talked a lot already in this interview about managing hurricane responses. It's historically been a key test for governors. You yourself faced four major hurricanes while you were governor. What do you make of the job that Governor DeSantis is doing so far? Well, I've been in I've been in Collier, Lee, Sarasota, Charlotte, and Osceola counties, and here's what I'm seeing. Uh, what I'm seeing is our sheriff's departments are working their butts off for fire and rescue. Um, Red Cross is there. Uh, emergency management teams are there. FEMA's come in. Uh, so every I know everybody's working really hard. Uh, so and I and so everything I'm seeing is people are working their butts off. Um, I'm, I'm scared to death that people haven't been it- rescued yet because there's still. As of, as of this morning, there's still people to go. So, you know, we'll, uh, so what I'm seeing is everybody's working their tail off. Is that because of Governor DeSantis's leadership? 
Well, it, I mean, it takes everybody. It takes federal, state, and local leadership to get this done. So I'm appreciative that everybody cares about all these people, and I appreciate that everybody's working hard. Senator, I know you're understandably very focused on what is happening uh, in your state of Florida. But I have to ask you about what appears to be a threat by former President Trump against your colleague, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, Trump said, quote, he has a death wish for supporting Democratic-sponsored bills. He also mocked McConnell's wife and his own former Transportation Secretary, Elaine Chao, as, quote, China-loving and Coco Chow. You're a member of the Senate GOP leadership. Are you okay with this? Well, look, I, I can never talk about, respond to why anybody else says what they said. But here's what is the way I looked at it is I think, you know, what the president is saying is, you know, we've there's been a lot of money spent over the last two years. Uh, we've got to make sure we don't keep caving to Democrats. It's causing unbelievable inflation and causing more and more debt. Um, as you know, you know, the president likes, likes to give people nicknames. You can ask him how he came up uh, with the nickname. Uh, I'm sure he has a nickname for me. Um, but. You know, here's what I know. We, we got to watch how we spend our money. We got to stop this inflation. Um, and, you know, and I, don't, I don't condone violence, and I hope any, no one else condones violence. Nicknames are one thing, but this, this, is, this appears racist. Is that okay? It's never, ever okay to be a racist. Um, um, it's, you know, look, I think you always have to be careful, you know, if you're in the public you know, eye, how you, how you say things. You want to make sure you're inclusive. You want to make sure, uh, like yesterday in the neighborhood I was in, we had people probably from 10 countries that live there. And so that's what's great about this country. And what I, I know what I try to do is try to make sure everybody, everybody uh, especially all their kids, believe they have a hope and they can dream, uh, live the dream of this country. So I hope no one is racist. I hope no one says anything that's inappropriate. Um, so I'm going to do everything I can. Senator, thank you again. That was uh, so beyond the pale that I, I really, as a member of the leadership, I had to ask you about it. But you are, are, again, understandably focused on the devastation in your home state. And good luck over the next days and weeks to come. Yeah. yeah. Pray for our state. Thank you. And nowhere to run. Russia is forced to retreat from a strategic city as Vladimir Putin escalates nuclear threats. Are they credible? Florida Senator and top Republican Intel member Marco Rubio will join me. Welcome back to State of the Union. Dramatic images out of Ukraine where Ukrainian troops raised the flag over the strategic city of Lehman after driving Russian troops to retreat. That victory comes just one day after Putin issued his latest round of nuclear threats. Now Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is speaking out about those threats in a new interview with Fareed Zakaria that will air in full next hour. There, there are no, no checks on, uh, on Mr. Putin. Just as he made the irresponsible decision to, uh, to invade Ukraine, uh, you know, he could make another decision. Uh, but I don't see anything right now that, that would lead me to believe that he has made such a decision. Here with me now, the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. We have a lot to get to, Senator, but of course, I want to start with the destruction in your home state after Hurricane Ian. President Biden said this week that the federal government has given the governor everything 
he needs and everything he's asked for in terms of emergency response. Is that what you're seeing? Or is there more that Florida needs from the federal government? Well, there there will be more. Good morning. Thank you for covering this. Uh, There will be more that's needed. But uh, as usual and always, uh, FEMA has been a great partner. The Biden administration has responded, as they've said. And so there's no complaints there. These are professionals. And I think in times like this, uh, people realize that uh, it's not about politics. It shouldn't be. And so uh, it's the way it's always been. And that was our expectation. Mm-hmm. So the answer is yes. We'll know what those full needs are in the long term as well. There will be a lot of people who have no homes to return to now or in the near future. They'll be eligible for individual assistance. Uh, we're still in the search and rescue process, although I think it now starts becoming more about search and recovery. And mm-hmm. then, of course, begins the, the process of, of rebuilding to the extent possible, which will take years. Uh, some of these Fort Myers Beach, Sanibel, I mean, they'll never look the same again. These, are, these communities have basically been uh, you know, wiped out, and so now it'll, it'll be about the long term. The long term in that some of these communities may never fully recover? Well, they'll recover. They just won't be the same, right? I mean, for, if you talk about, for example, Fort Myers Beach, this is a, a, like a slice of old Florida. It was still mm-hmm. a place where a lot of families would go and created memories, my own family included, on places like Sanibel years ago. And I think it's the first beach my, my, my daughter, who's now 22, ever went to with us. <laughs> and a lot of families around Florida who made memories on those places. And, and obviously mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're going to be rebuilt, but they won't look the same because you can't rebuild sure. old Florida. Some of those places that had been there for so long are just gone. And Ian isn't the only recent hurricane causing major problems for American citizens. It's been two weeks since Hurricane Fiona hit Puerto Rico. Almost 150,000 people there still don't have power. Tens of thousands don't even have clean drinking water. How will you make sure Puerto Rico isn't left behind again? And ultimately, do you think that Puerto Rico should become a state so that it could be more resilient in having infrastructure for disasters like this? Well, let me answer your second question first. I've long believed the people of Puerto Rico should be given the opportunity to vote for statehood. Uh, many, it's a 50-50 issue there. Some say I think actually the statehood support has grown. They still only have a right to make that to have that vote. vote. Uh, these are American citizens. I think on a per capita basis, Puerto Ricans serve in the armed forces at a higher rate than just about mm-hmm. any community in the country. Um, part of the challenge with Puerto Rico is that unlike a contiguous state, the mutual aid is difficult because you've got to send it there. I thought they did a, it's a, it's a tremendous devastation, and as you've pointed out, close to 200,000 people still have no power. Uh, they, they seem to re, be in better position to respond this time around uh, because there were prepositioned assets, because part of the grid had been rebuilt since the last storm, proved more resilient. And I have personal friends that live in Puerto Rico who last night were, I mean, in some parts of, of the island, gone about their lives. You know, it's, it's moved, moved on, but there are still close to 200,000 people with no power, and as you've said, probably 170 thousand that have no access to clean drinking water. So they, they won't, I don't expect they'll be left behind. I think the president will be traveling there early next week as well. Mm-hmm. And we'll do everything we can. We always have uh, to support Puerto Rico now in the recovery um, after this yet another devastating storm. Senator, you wrote a letter Friday to the Senate Appropriations Committee asking for disaster relief dollars for desperately needed resources to rebuild Florida communities. After Hurricane Sandy hit northeastern states in 2012, you voted no on a $50 Mm -hmm. billion relief package. I know you supported a smaller version, but why should other senators vote for relief for your state when you didn't vote for a package to help theirs? Oh, I've always voted for hurricane and disaster relief. I've even voted for it without pay for us. 
What I didn't vote for in Sandy is because they had included things like a roof for a museum in Washington, D.C., for fisheries in Alaska. It had been loaded up with a bunch of things that had nothing to do with disaster relief. And I wouldn't support disaster relief uh, efforts. I would never put out there that we should go use a disaster relief package for Florida as a way to pay for all kinds of other things people want around the country. So I think that's the key in moments like this. And, and Sandy, unfortunately, they loaded it up. They really did with well, a bunch of things that had nothing to do with Sandy. But I voted for every disaster relief package, especially the, that's clean. And I'll continue right. to do so when it comes to Florida. I'll do that again. And we'll make sure that that package is clean and doesn't have stuff for other people in there. I read the Congressional Research Service report last night. It sounds like that roof actually was damaged by the hurricane. And what happened in Alaska was the result of another disaster. But in any event, my question is, about the future. Are you telling me that if Hurricane Ian relief contains anything that smells like pork, you'll vote no? Sure. I'll fight against it having pork in it. That's the key. Uh, we shouldn't have that in there because it undermines the ability to come back and do this in the future. Here's what happens, and people need to understand it. We can do it. It's possible to do it without loading it with these other things because otherwise you'll have people in the Senate, in the House, that are going to vote against disaster relief because they view these disaster relief bills as ways for other people to get their pork and yeah. their pet projects done. And, and it undermines the ability to go back to do it in the future. But I have consistently voted for disaster relief for all parts of this country. Uh, and, and I've never even insisted on it being paid for like some people do, which they want cut somewhere else in the budget. I think disaster relief is something we shouldn't play with. We are capable in this country, in the Congress, of voting for disaster relief for key, uh, after key events like this without using it as a vehicle or a mechanism uh, to, for people to load it up with stuff that's unrelated to the storm. Senator, I want to turn to some topics uh, under your purview as the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee and, of course, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee. Big, big developments with Russia. Ukrainian President Zelensky said overnight that the key city of Lehman has been completely liberated after Russia was forced to withdraw its troops. Do you think Ukraine is on a viable path to regain the territory that it's lost and ultimately win the war? Well, I think they're on a key path to regain a lot of territory. I can't tell you exactly from a tactical perspective how much of it they'll regain. I think that the bigger issue here is that there really is no way for Russia and Putin to win this war or any of their objectives. Uh, Putin is down to two choices here. Number one, they can design defensive lines and say, here's where we're going to draw some lines and this is the territory we're going to try to hold on to and concentrate his forces in that regard and take a couple of years to retrofit their forces. Or B, they can retreat and continue to lose territory. They certainly don't have offensive capability right now. The worry becomes the unpredictability of what Putin does in a situation like that. If he decides that, uh, for example, that the NATO arming of and the European arming and the U.S. arming of Ukraine is causing not just him to lose his war and therefore undermine his grip on power, but in fact perhaps threatening uh, his own forces with inside, or inside of Russia, I think it's quite possible that he could end up striking some of these distribution places where these supplies are coming through, including inside Poland. A lot mm. of talk about nuclear, but I think the thing I worry most about is a Russian attack inside NATO territory, for example, aiming at the airport in Poland would, or some other distribution point. Would NATO have to respond? Well, I think it would depend on the nature of the strike and how the other allies within NATO would respond to it. There certainly would be an attack on one. And so, therefore, certainly NATO will have to respond to it. How it will respond, I think a lot of it will depend on the nature of the attack and the, uh, and, and the scale and scope of it. But I think that's really the biggest fear right now that I have, is that he would conduct an attack against a NATO supply center inside of a place like Poland, 
uh, that would certainly raise the specter of you, a direct Russian attack against a NATO ally. You mentioned that you're more worried about that than uh, than him potentially using any nuclear weapons. Several Biden administration officials, including the Secretary of Defense, the National Security Advisor, say that they haven't seen evidence that Putin will imminently use a nuclear weapon. As uh, the top Republican on the Intelligence Committee, is that what you're seeing as well? Well, I wouldn't comment on what they're seeing or not seeing. I would say that I'm not saying the risk of him detonating a nuclear device as a demonstration is zero. I think certainly the risk is probably higher today than it was a month ago. I just think if you walk down that escalation path before he gets to that point, which is a pretty mm -hmm. severe escalation, there are probably something he would do intermittent or in intermediate, uh, which would probably be, for example, what, you know, the, uh, what's the purpose of a tactical nuclear weapon detonated for demonstration purposes is to send mm -hmm. a message. But I think... If he believes that this arming of Ukraine is what's causing him to lose this war and potentially his, his position of power, he may strike uh, one of these logistical points, and that logistical point may not be inside of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. To me, that is the area that I focus on the most because it has a tactical uh, aspect to it, mm -hmm. and I think he probably views it as less escalatory. NATO may not. Mm, absolutely. Uh, talk about, talking about escalatory tactics the stunning new leaks in the Nordstrom pipelines connecting Europe to Russia. Western intelligence officials say they were likely caused by underwater explosions. President Biden called it a deliberate attack of sabotage. Does the U.S. have evidence that Russia is responsible? Well, I'm not going to comment on whatever intelligence products they've produced or had. I think logic and common sense will tell you that these things don't blow up on their own, especially in strategic and key points. Someone has to know where the vulnerabilities are. And someone has to have the capability to go down there and do it. So there's only a handful of countries mm -hmm. that do. I doubt very seriously that the Chinese are involved in it, although I'm not a fan of the Chinese Communist Party. I wouldn't go as far as to accuse them of doing that. I mm -hmm. think it's pretty clear. Someone did this, and the only people in that region who have both the motive and the capability to have done it are Russian or Russian forces. So um, I think for me it's not an intelligence matter yeah. at this point. It's a common sense matter. Senator Ro Pretty much out of time, but I have to ask you very quickly about Venezuela. Seven Americans wrongly detained there are coming home in a prisoner swap. The U.S. released two Venezuelans in exchange for those seven. Um, you're not happy with this decision. The White House admits it was tough. Well, the two Venezuelans that were released are the nephews of Maduro who happened to be convicted drug dealers. Uh, they were put in jail after being convicted. After a fair trial in the United States, evidence was produced and it was overwhelming. The seven Americans were hostages, and here's my problem with it. That has now put a price tag on Americans. Every time you do one of these deals, and I wanted those people released as much as anybody, but every time you do this, now others know I can take Americans, I can hold them until I need something as a bargaining chip. So what that has done is now sent a message to tyrants and dictators all over the world to go ahead and trump up some charges and arrest some Americans because when the time comes, we'll be able to exchange them. So I think seven innocent American hostages in exchange for two convicted drug dealers who happen to be the nephews of Maduro is a huge win for Maduro and unfortunately puts Americans all over the world now in danger. Senator Marco Rubio, thank you so much. Thank you. Former President Obama is raising the stakes on November's election and brand new comments why he says it's not a normal election. Our panel is here. We're going to talk about that and much more ahead. When people are fighting for their lives, when their whole livelihood is at stake, when they've lost everything, uh, if you can't put politics aside for that, uh, then you're just not going to be able to. Times like these, Americans come together. 
They put aside politics. They put aside division. And we come together to help each other. Welcome back to State of the Union. Those are very, very uh, nice things to hear from two leaders who need to come together to deal with a major crisis. They say it's not political, but let's talk to our panel because when it comes down to it, particularly when you're looking at a governor of a state whose leadership is under the microscope, who's thinking about running for president in 2024, it's all political, right? We know that. Um, I want to ask about Ron DeSantis. I'll start with you. Welcome to the panel, Brandon. How do you think he's doing with regard to the very obvious 2024 aspirations he has? Yeah, clearly he wants this to be his commander in chief moment. He's standing there at the command center. He's letting people know that he's in charge of things. Uh, Ron DeSantis has defined himself through the culture wars, but his pitch for 2024 is going to be, I can give you all everything you like about Donald Trump, but still a competent government. So I think that's what he is trying to prove here. I, I am I will fight your culture war, but I'm not a clown. I can get things done. And, he, and he's projecting, I think, a, a level of competence that Republicans can have comfort with if Donald Trump is not ultimately the nominee. Well, I think you're right. I again want to put politics aside. I think if you saw those images this week and will continue, your heart breaks. How do you start over along the whole coastline? Um, but I also think it matters what you did before the storm hit and what you will do after the storm and recovery has really come. And I think that people, this moment will be remembered, but it, I don't think it will be enough to take him to the point where it is his commander in chief moment because he has done some pretty nasty things to people in his, for, in his state. And that will spill over the state lines when he needs to actually win the American popular One vote. of the things that we notice is that he's very, very on it when it comes to the, the details and the data and um, the sort of the mechanics. We haven't seen him. We haven't been able to find any footage of him out with the people, which is just a different approach. That's right. You haven't seen sort of this empathetic governor going out and hugging people, et cetera. I think that's what you'll see from President Biden. He won't be in Puerto Rico throwing paper towels. He's going to be out there talking to families about how he can help them. I think what's interesting about Governor DeSantis, it will be interesting to see President Biden and Governor DeSantis together in Florida, and then they will put their political differences aside. But um, in your earlier interview, it'll also be interesting to see if other Republicans praise Governor DeSantis, knowing that he wants to run in 2024. Mm -hmm. So I think that is something that people should watch. And it's interesting because you're right. Governor DeSantis is someone who's very tactical. He wants to get funding in and he he will talk about what he's doing, but he's not going to be out there really trying to embrace people and trying to tell them, listen, I am here to fix this. He's not a charismatic leader. Having spent some time with him around the Hill, uh, he, you know, he is a lot of things, but he's not someone who is going to put your arm around you and make you feel better. He he doesn't have that sort of emotional connection, but that doesn't mean you can't be a different type of leader. So I think Mm -hmm. that's what you're seeing. Speaking of leaders, um, Scott Jennings, I'm going to ask you this again. This is a question that I posed to Rick Scott as a member of the Republican leadership, along with, uh, with Mitch McConnell Something that Donald Trump said on his uh, social media network about Mitch McConnell. He said, Donald Trump said, he has a death wish, must immediately seek help and and advise from, I think he meant advice, advice from his China-loving wife, Coco Chow. This is a former president saying such things about a Republican leader and his wife. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start with the assassination instructions or the blatant racism. I mean, if you read that whole thing out loud, if you were on the street and you heard someone muttering that on the street corner, you wouldn't say, hmm, let's hand this person the presidency or the Republican nomination for president. You'd say, 
Call 911 because it sounds like an unhinged, deranged person has gotten loose and is out on the street and may be a danger to themselves and others. This is outrageous. It's beyond the pale. Every Republican ought to be able to say so. This is not good for the party. It's not good for him. It may, on the right right now, it is really in vogue to pass around clips of Joe Biden looking like he's confused and sort of out of it, whatever. You tell me that that doesn't sound like deranged, unhinged, confused, whatever. It's the same. So if, you're, if you want to say these things about Joe Biden, look at Donald Trump's words right now and tell me this guy sounds like he's got it together. Are you satisfied with what Rick Scott said? No, of course not. And I don't know whether he was unprepared for it or he hadn't seen it, but there's something very easy about this. And what's easy is to say this is not good, it's not helpful, it's not good politically, it's not good personally, this is bad for the party, bad for the country, and it's not becoming of a former president and somebody who wants to have the job again. I, I do wonder, though, what happens when he starts doing campaigning again in this midterm cycle. Will What does that say then about the candidates that want him to still come and stump for him to win? I, I, what does that say about the party? I think it you have to either be consistent and say, this is not who I want to align with, but then not the next day say, like, but I want your help to get me votes. Just say, no, we want you out of our party. He, he was with Tudor Dixon, the Republican candidate for governor in Michigan last night. Who is struggling, and I think she's trying to just do whatever she can to turn out the base. I mean, I think Rick Scott's answer there speaks volumes. He couldn't figure out how to condemn a very obvious racist and, frankly, a death threat to his, his colleague. You think it was a death threat? I, I, even if it wasn't, the crazy people who stormed the Capitol, for example, right. see it as... It was in all caps. Read it. He put the word death we wish in all caps. We should know by heads. now that yeah. people take what caps, he says literally. But it speaks so much volume that Rick Scott can't condemn that because he knows that people still love Donald Trump. Voters love him. And until that changes, you're going to see Republicans unwilling to fully step away from well, him. Well, this has been the ever since Trump has, was, has been president of the United States, the Republican Party will not speak out against him. And this is a constant trend. And I think that even though he's left office and um, and a citizen, he goes out and says stuff and the Republican Party can't stand up. And this is this is who the nominee will be in 2024, likely, and the leader of the Republican Party. And you can't even find a few people to speak out against. I mean, should Republicans follow your playbook, Scott? They should not. Who are on the ballot. Uh, Well, (laughs) look, October of an election year. I I mean, I don't know. Everybody's got to run their own race for 2024. Look, he's lost a national popular vote twice. He's never gotten more votes than a Democrat in his entire life. It is unlikely that he would get more votes in 2024. Do we want to plunge the party and the country into chaos again with this kind of rhetoric and this kind of... I mean, that's what's great about DeSantis here, actually, just to pivot back to where we started. This is a guy who's doing the things that Republicans, as Brendan said, uh, like, but at the same time exhibiting what it might look like to have a competent government operator at the same time. You're not going to get that out of somebody with that kind of deranged well, rhetoric. Before we get to 2024, we do have midterm elections in, in just about a month from now. Um, I mentioned this before. The former president, Democratic president, uh, Barack Obama, he was speaking at a fundraiser. Our colleague Dan Merica got this reporting where he talked about the fact that there's a lot of mischief that can be done with a House Republican majority that this is not a normal election as somebody who worked in a House Republican majority. Very different times until the end. (laughs) Um, What do you make of that? Is he right? 
I think he wants to create a choice. I mean, that's what Democrats have been trying to do. It's, it's Republicans versus Democrats, when usually a midterm election is a referendum on who's in charge. And that's what Republicans want. They want three things. They want to talk about who's in charge. You're angry. Make sure you know who's in charge. They want to talk about the economy. And they want to talk about crime. There's all kinds of cultural issues that are going on. But Republicans who are, who are going to be successful are focusing on those three issues. Uh, and Democrats have put all of their eggs in the abortion basket. That is the only issue that they, want, that they, are, they are running on right now. And so they want to create a choice. Is this election about abortion or is it about the economy? Ten seconds. (laughs) We also want to save our democracy. And two thirds of the folks who have won Republican primaries are election deniers. And I think that's actually what my former boss was referring to as well. That was impressive. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. Great discussion. Important discussion. Up next, our visit to the Tidewater region of Virginia, one of the most competitive districts in the country. What issues are shaping how people vote in a race that could decide control of Congress. Our deep dive next. What matters most to voters just 37 days away from the midterms? We went to Virginia's second congressional district to find out. It's one of the swingiest swing districts in the country where the outcome may decide if Democrats keep control of the House after November. Hi, Elaine. Early voting is underway in Virginia, and incumbent Democrat Elaine Loria is out pressing the flesh. And I'm going to sign Great. in my yard. Thank you. Her race here in Virginia's Tidewater region is one of the most closely watched in the country. If you look across the spectrum in the country, this is number 218. 218, meaning if you win or lose, it could determine whether or not Democrats have control of the House. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I spent 20 years in the Navy. I'm used to operating in a high-pressure environment. Loria is a retired naval commander who served on six warships as a nuclear-trained surface warfare officer. She's also a veteran of two intense political campaigns. Her first win in 2018 helped deliver Democrats their House majority. This year, her Republican challenger is also a Navy veteran, a pilot, nurse, and now state senator. She mostly communicates publicly with voters through paid ads. Driving inflation down, so groceries cost less. That message is resonating with voters like Jason Fichetti. What's driving your vote is this? This. This was $127, and a year and a half ago, it would have been $75, $80. He feels let down by Democrats in Washington. I'm a staunch independent, but it's been going to one direction lately because they're just not, they don't care about me. Gas prices are absurd. But Ryan Farmer says Democrats are not to blame for the struggling economy. He's supporting Loria. I don't care who's president, the gas prices are going to be expensive. It's just the way it is right now. Keegan's team declined an interview or to share information about where she would be campaigning. They offered us Virginia Attorney General Jason Meares instead. A lot of people candidly are concerned about what they're coming out of Washington. They don't think they're focused on the right priorities and they think they're spending too much money and it's impacting their wallet. Why is inflation Elaine Loria's fault? Well, she's voted with, you know, Nancy Pelosi over 98% of the time. She only sees Pelosi and Biden. Kiggins ads link Loria to Democrats running Washington. Thank God we elected Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and they've done so many good things. Voters we met in Virginia Beach are watching. One commercial that I saw, she stood up there and said, what a great job. I don't Regardless of your party, where we are now is not comfortable for anyone. 
This is one of the few true swing districts left in a largely gerrymandered house. It's gone back and forth between parties four times since 2000. The Democratic incumbent walks the finest of lines. I think this administration has accomplished a lot. We've gotten shots in arm. We've gotten kids back to school. We've helped the economy come out of a pandemic. And as far as the president's agenda, like, I don't support everything. You know, I honestly think that he's not doing enough for defense. Luria is a member of the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. President Trump has never publicly acknowledged his Which she thought could be a negative in her tight race, but now thinks is a political plus. The number one thing people say to me when they see me is, you know, thank you for your work on the committee. Because people really, I think, do understand, like, what a threat this is to our democracy. I think for a lot of voters, they appreciate uh, her service on that. They appreciate her service in general. Uh, but they also want to see her being focused on what's impacting their pocketbook every day. That's inflation. January 6th committee is not impacting their daily pocketbook. Like other Democrats across the country, Luria is banking on another issue driving her voters to the polls, abortion. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, Jen Kiggins applauded the court decision. Kiggins responded with a video on social media. I've always been an advocate for women to choose life, but for allowing for exceptions in cases of rape, incest, and life of the mother. I couldn't tell you what the hell she believes. You don't believe her? You know... I don't believe anything this woman says. Um, She, in my mind, has no spine. She really just says whatever she thinks she needs to say to get elected, and that changes every other week. Luria's well-funded campaign paints her GOP opponent as an extremist, again prompting a tightly scripted Kagan's rebuttal. Extremist? That's a new one. Extremist is still a dirty word in this purple Virginia district, which will likely again help determine which party controls Congress. Thanks so much for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria starts now with a brand new exclusive interview with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 